Today's episode of the Villain News Podcast is brought to you by Amp Human and its new PR Lotion. PR Lotion is the only sports lotion that combines skin absorption technology with the natural electrolyte called bicarb. Bicarb buffers the acid that builds up during exercise, which allows you to train harder and recover faster. And PR Lotions allows these nutrients to bypass your GI system altogether and be delivered through your skin. It's being used right now by pro riders on the EF Pro Cycling and Rally Pro Cycling teams, as well as by athletes in the NHL, NBA, and NFL. And right now, listeners of the Velo News Podcast get a special deal on PR Lotion. If you go to amphuman.com, that's A-M-P human.com, and use the code VELONEWS25, you can get 25% off your next purchase of PR Lotion. Again, amphuman.com, use the code VELONEWS25, get 25% off on PR Lotion. Thanks to Amp Human for sponsoring this week's episode of the VELONEWS Podcast. Let's get on with the show. Uh, welcome back to the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you from a sunny Tuesday outside of Boulder, Colorado from the uh, new Velo News headquarters, which is the spare bedroom in my house. Um, I'm recording this on a Tuesday in uh, the new era of uh, pro cycling and the coronavirus where all of us are working from home and reporting on how um, this growing pandemic is changing the sport. Apologies beforehand if you hear any babies crying, dogs barking, birds chirping. Um, since we're no longer in the confines of the Velo News podcast studio and we are out in the wilds of the regular world, um, background noise, bumps, Babies crying, that type of stuff uh, is definitely going to happen. I say just take it as like uh, verite, man. You're just like listening to what the real world sounds like in cycling um, podcast form. We have a great show for you this week. We are going to talk all about the Mid-South Gravel Race. That was the big uh, gravel race out in Stillwater, Oklahoma, one of our monuments of gravel that went on two weekends ago, and it was a very controversial race because it was one of the final events that went on um, before the entire sport was shut down due to the uh, growing pandemic. Lots of different opinions about whether the race should have gone on, whether media should have been there, whether, whether athletes should have gone. We were on the ground like we were at Perry Nice in the UAE Tour, and um, we're going to talk with Betsy Welch and Ben Delaney, who were both on the ground doing some great reporting on the event and uh, what people had to say about it. In the second half of the show, we're going to hear from Hannah Finchamp, who won the Mid-South. We're going to talk to her all about her race. Um, she uh, This was her first gravel race, a uh, longtime mountain biker, and uh, hopped on the gravel race for this muddy peanut buttery race and came out on top. So we're going to hear from Hannah all about her race and her thoughts on um, the controversy swirling around it. So before I get to Betsy and Ben, uh, I'm recording this on Tuesday, March 24th. And on today, Tuesday, March 24th, I can say with great certainty that I feel like the Mid-South Gravel Race should not have gone on. I feel like it should have been canceled or postponed. Uh, of course, I, I feel like I can say the same about Perry Nice, about Omlupet Newsblad, about UAE Tour, about any number of events that happened in late February, in early, early March. Um, I feel like they should have been canceled or postponed. Um, and of course, I say that as someone who has hindsight, um, who is uh, looking back at 
those events through the lens of what has transpired over the last two weeks. And I also say that as someone who spent the last week consuming lots of media about coronavirus and its spread, who has read lots of heartbreaking stories in the New York Times about what's gone on in Italy and Spain, watched videos of people being intubated in hospitals, and um, someone who also has seen my own life change. Uh, Yesterday, I had to go to a grocery store, and it was a somewhat harrowing experience. I wasn't touching anything. I barely made eye contact with people. I kept my distance. I got the heck out of there. You know, I had been in that same grocery store eight days beforehand, and it was not a big deal at all. So, well, I feel like the Mid-South, yes, should have been canceled. I'm also realizing that uh, I have the benefit of hindsight, and I have the benefit of someone who has spent a lot of time consuming all this media. But if we're going to talk about the people who went to the Mid-South, the organizers who put it on, the media who checked it out, uh, those people didn't have the benefit of hindsight or of two weeks worth of coronavirus content reading or of being scared by lots of different uh, media and the harsh realities of this pandemic. Um, They faced a situation in which they had to make a judgment call as more and more information was coming out about this thing. Um, And bicycle racing in general was something that went from being looked upon as um, something you might want to do, a good a good idea, to being somewhat questionable, to being frowned upon in the matter of days, sometimes hours. And it just so happened that those days and hours had to cor- it just happened to correspond with the days leading up to this race. So that's my big preamble. I want to welcome on uh, Betsy Welch and Ben Delaney, both of whom went to the race, participated in the race, but did a lot of reporting around why the race carried on what people had to say with it, uh, and the the people and the brands and the athletes who were there to participate in it. So, Betsy, I'll start with you. First of all, Betsy, where are you coming to us from today? Are you you are not at the Vela News World Headquarters either, right? Nope, I am in the um, the spare bedroom slash gear room slash uh, laundry drying room. You know, the multi-purpose room uh-huh. of my house. <laughs> that has become the new office. And Ben, what is your uh, new office? I'm working out here in the uh, shop at the back of my house. So hopefully that will mute, if not to eliminate the sounds of children and their loud music. Too friendly, but vocal dogs. If we do hear anything in the background, um, what can you guys attribute it to? It's, been, it's actually been surprisingly quiet here in the last couple of days with traffic uh, coming almost to a standstill. So noticing a lot more birds than ever before. But yeah, we've got two dogs. I've got a pit bull and a beagle who may make an appearance uh, and two teenagers also. So fair warning. <laughs> well, guys, let's get into it. You know, when we um, talked, you guys set out to go to the Mid-South. You drove out there um, and you left on Wednesday, March 11th. The race was on Saturday, March 14th. And when you guys left, um, you know, the COVID storyline was very much the biggest story in sports and what was going on. And we were all trying to wrap our heads around it. You know, just a few days beforehand, the Strata Bianca race had been called off. But um, when you guys left on Wednesday, it was like the NBA was still playing games. Um, the Olympics were still on. March Madness was still happening. Um, the way that we were viewing um, COVID's impact on pro sports was still sort of a cautiously optimistic, let's wait and see type um, scenario. So take me through your timeline. You leave on a Wednesday and you arrive on a Thursday 
And how did the situation change in the days leading up to the uh, to the event? Yeah, it really does seem that, you know, as you say, from Wednesday through Sunday uh, was the period of greatest acceleration, at least in the United States. You know, we had Jim Cotton there at the UAE tour, and that was late February. That still seemed for us very remote, very far, safely far away. Uh, Europe, parts of Europe uh, came, came afterwards, but Perry Nice was still in the minds of the organizers and most of the racers deemed at a safe distance. I think we saw something similar uh, in the U.S. where initially in that Wednesday through Sunday time frame, uh, the coasts were under higher alert sooner uh, than the middle of the country. So for us, yeah, we left Colorado on a Wednesday, drove partway, stayed in lovely Hayes, Kansas. And just in the few hours of our drive that night, things changed and our phones started blowing up as we were uh, driving. Woke up Thursday morning and I put the newsletter together. It was all COVID cancellations that morning. But Perry Nice was still on. Uh, Thursday morning, we drove the rest of the way to Stillwater. Our One of our coworkers, who shall remain nameless, Brad Kaninsky, uh, locked a seat in the car at a gas station. And we were joking like, is this a sign from the universe that we should not be proceeding? Um, so that was certainly on our minds. Yeah. And, and I'll say, too, that um, when we left... You know, our our office in Boulder was still uh, fully staffed. Um, we people were at work. Um, we had made the decision to start working from home the following week. But um, when we left, a lot of and, and our situation wasn't dissimilar from a lot of people. Most people were still going to work. Um, people were still going about a lot of their normal activities with a degree of caution. But at that time, decisions were sort of being made. Um, you know, more haphazardly. It, it just depended on what your boss or your daycare had decided at that point. We weren't getting um, this incredibly consistent messaging from one reliable source. It was a bit, it felt a bit piecemeal, although, you know, the, the, the tenor was increasing and concerns were increasing and, and the dominoes were starting to fall, but it was still fairly inconsistent. I would say at that point. But however, as we traveled, you know, eastbound, it, it did kind of feel strange that we were we were like physically moving in space and, and information was physically coming at us sort of the other way. It was a, it was a strange sensation. Another strange thing I just noticed in our uh, our physical behavior, you know, Betsy's a registered nurse and was our de facto advisor on this. <laughs> uh, you know, so she came, came supplied with a you know, hospital issue bottle of Purell. And yeah, we were making a conscious effort to keep a distance from people and bump elbows instead of shake hands. But uh, it took me a couple days to adjust hundred percent all the time, just out of you know decades of muscle memory. When I meet somebody for the first time, my instinct is to put out my hand. And then sometimes I would catch myself or sometimes the other person would catch catch me incorrect or, or vice versa. So that was a, that was a strange sociological experiment to be in. And, you know, we saw that similarly across the, uh, the other racers being there at the event, just is this really awkward stilted behavior of not wanting to appear rude to people who you hadn't seen for a long, for a long time, but also uh, wanting to do the right thing. And all the while trying to grapple with an understanding of what is the right thing for us to do. 
Now, as an editor and a longtime reporter, as I followed you guys out there, you know, I was monitoring the situation as well and seeing, you know, sports events getting canceled and uh, more information coming out. And I, I, I will say that I, as an editor, was um, a little jealous. And as, as a journalist, I was a little jealous. Um, it may sound completely irrational to many people listening to this podcast, but when you're a journalist, you think about things a little bit differently, especially when there's big national storylines going on. You want to be in the action. You want to be at events where um, where there's news, where there's stories, where people are, um, you know, where people are having experiences that speak to the wider um, experience of what's going on with like a global pandemic. For example, I mean, when Jim Cotton was at the UAE tour and all of a sudden it was shut down, I mean, it was a very terrifying moment for the reporters and the people on the ground there. But the reporters on the ground there sprung into action and were talking to riders and were jotting down what it was like to be in the midst of this, um, you know, potential outbreak and what can the world learn from it? And here's what the test was like. And here's how long we had to sit. And here's what I, you know, here's the reporting I could do. And when you're a reporter, um, you think a little bit differently than a normal person when you're in a situation like this. Um, you, you know, you put yourself out there and put yourself not necessarily in harm's way, but in situations that other people might not. When I was a reporter with the New York Daily News and, um, and uh, DNA Info New York City, it was like the rule of thumb was when someone told you, not, someone in authority told you not to go somewhere, that's where you wanted to be. And you wanted to find out any way you could to get there because that is where the story was. So as you guys continued on your way to Oklahoma, I mean, the uh, part of what I was thinking about was like, you guys are going into where the story is. Here's this event that is continuing. Here's a situation that's changing very quickly. And we are going to learn from the reporting you, you do what it's like to be in the last big bike race held on the calendar. Sure. Now we were certainly cognizant of that being at the, like the edge of the tidal wave. I think what's different about this particular thing and becomes uh, increasingly so more apparent in retrospect uh, is that putting yourself out there and this is very different than like, not that we as cycling journalists are, are, are war correspondents, but putting yourself in a position where you could get shot is different because it's uh, your own personal safety that is uh, the variable. And with this pandemic, as we are all, are all now quite aware, um, it's the, the safety of your society, right? Um, so that was certainly something, like at least on the drive home, that we were all discussing is that um, you know, the, the orders now are everybody stay home, stay away from each other. <laughs> and, and so that's something that Betsy and I struggle with is like, is being there part of the problem. Um, and, and again, retrospect is, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty and all that, but yeah, it was, it was it's certainly odd, odd to be there and, 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 and even stranger now to, to look back on that now that the, our world has changed so much in recent days. Yeah, and I think too, uh, you know, it's so important to keep coming back to the fact that we are in totally uncharted waters here. I mean, nobody, none of us in our lifetime across the globe have experienced something like this. And and as reporters and as just humans too, I think that we went into this thinking that there there because it's uncharted because we don't really know what we're going into there's got to be a responsible way to do it. So it wasn't that we were like cavalier, like, oh, we're just going to 
you know, march onto the battlefield. It was more like, well, it seems like at this point, there is a responsible way to do it. We're listening to the race organizers. We are taking, you know, um, more precaution than normal around hygiene and physical contact and things like that. So, hey, maybe, maybe this is how we do this. And maybe this is the responsible way to do this. Um, it's not like we were discounting all um, advice and recommendations. We were trying to figure out in the uncertainty what what it looked like, what it looked like to go to a race and report on it and talk to people. Um, and that felt like the right thing to do at the time. It felt okay. It, I'm not saying it didn't feel strange because this world is really strange now. Um, but it it felt like we were we were doing it with the information we had at the time, um, we were navigating those uncertain waters. So, Betsy, I was, re- oh. I was gonna say that was certainly reflected by the other riders and the other race volunteers and the the four by four Jeep Club volunteers who acted as neutral support out there. Uh, there was definitely a an eerie air to it. Um, I don't think, as Betsy said, I don't think anyone was being cavalier. And just laughing it off by any stretch. So, Betsy, you had a great piece that published um, the Friday before the event that captured the mood of the um, pre-event. You know, captured the pre-event mood. You went and talked to riders. You talked to organizers. You talked to brands. You talked to lots of different people there about their sentiments around this event um, through the lens of COVID and what other, you know, through the lens of what other people were talking about there. Um Give the listeners a sense of once you got on the ground and started talking to people at these events, like what was the sentiment? How were people viewing the event and what was going on in the wider world? You know, to be totally honest, the weather was was pretty horrible while we were there. And that was a big topic of conversation. The Mid-South is known for um, the potential to become a muddy, mucky, horrible mess with a very high attrition rate. Um, so, you know, in that way, it was like, a, it was, like, it was sort of like a, you know, a brief escape from reality to talk about the weather, to sort of focus on the things about the race that are always the things about the race. Um, and, and people were talking about that, you know, people were happy to talk about that, I guess I should say. Um, when I approached people about their unease or how they were feeling about being there amidst um, the coronavirus pandemic, it was sort of like, yeah, you know, we we chose to come. We we have everyone knew someone who decided not to come. Um, so that was quite telling. But the race had done a, a good job of communicating in the week prior and, and offering people alternatives to coming. So it seemed like the people who had come had had come having weighed their decisions and and then they were there to do the bike race, albeit with some of those precautions like there was a lot of joking about elbow bumping and foot tapping um but but un- but but underneath the joking you could tell there was a sort of unease again like us i think people went thinking we can do this safely we can do this responsibly and um and why not cuz we're here and the race is happening um i talked to a couple brands i talked to some guys from i9 and shammy butter you know who are those expos at these races are, are a big deal for these guys. And, and they too had had internal conversations before leaving about, are we going to modify? Are we going to do this differently? And for a lot of people, the fact that they drove there made a big difference. Um, 
I think people had said if, if they had to fly, they might have changed their tune. Um, I think, you know, they thought about what they were going to have on their tables at the expo, you know, what they were going to allow people to touch versus not touch. Maybe they put out less product or something like that. Um, and then from the organization standpoint, you know, the sort of pre, pre-race media briefing, um, it was a lot of what they'd communicated with us already, uh, the, the, the participants beforehand, which was, you know, current CDC recommendations and then everything the race was doing um, in terms of like sanitation and hand washing stations and limiting physical contact and things like that. And and then it was just business as usual. I mean, we, they, there's still a bike race to be run. There's still physical safety of riders to consider. So so things like that. Ben, did you get a sense from um, talking to, you know, you were in contact with Amanda Nauman and some of the elite riders that there had been, um, you know, sort of a, a difficult decision made to actually get out there? I know that Amity Rockwell, for example, decided not to go citing online that, you know, she had airline travel and would be in and out of a bunch of different airports and felt it just wasn't, um, you know, wise for her to do it. But the elite riders who did make it there, what was their sentiment? Well, yeah, it was similar to those of ourselves and other amateur riders. One woman, uh, Courtney McFadden, made the trip out, flew out, uh, changed her mind, and flew home. So there's yeah, there's a whole whole spectrum. And now throughout this entire time, Betsy, you and and you did a story. You both, you guys, did a story after the race, talking about what was going on inside race management at this time. You spoke with Bobby Wintle, who is the promoter and founder of this race, and it sounds like he had been in touch with local government. And um, on Tuesday night, he had expected the event to be shut down entirely. Um, he spoke with the mayor and the city manager, and they gave him a tentative green light. Um, I believe that was on Thursday. And so from Thursday onward, he kind of put his, you know, put on the race director blinders that just, you know, have you focus on the tasks at hand and went forward to get everything done. Now, look, again, hindsight, I think we can be we can be critical of Wintel's decision to keep going with the race or at the very least to like on Thursday, um, you know, take that last check in with the city city government. Um, and you know, that green light that he got and go full speed ahead with it. But I will say that, um, from someone who's reported a lot on event promoters and events that have, um, gone on in the face of big unknown events, um, this isn't the first time I've seen this. Um, I spoke on the podcast a couple weeks ago about, um, the 2012 New York City Marathon, which happened, um, it fell on the calendar a week after Hurricane Sandy hit the city. And, um, you know, there was a big debate about whether it should go about whether it could go on. Um, the city had been hit by this hurricane. People were displaced. There were deaths. There were injuries. You know, it was a very serious time. But um, when people looked at the situation of could the New York City Marathon still go on, the determination was yes. And local government gave the event the green light. And so race promoters carried on with the race. And it wasn't until a few days later that the question came around to should the event go on? Not could it, but should it? And that's when public sentiment really started to turn against the New York City Marathon because the idea was, hey, you know, we're going to have this big event. It's taking resources away from affected areas, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, this event becomes this target of a lot of outrage and rage um, in the, you know, after the, after the hurricane. And the event was eventually shut down. But um, the promote after the the event was shut down by 
the government. Um, I guess that's a long way of saying the promoter is going to a lot of times try and continue with an event so long as the local government is giving them the green light to do so. That's what I learned from the experience with the uh, the New York City Marathon. And so when I read your story, I was looking for like, well, who was given this guy the green light? And it sounds like um, he had been given the green light from city managers. And again, you know, we can be critical of his decision to keep going with it. But I think you can look at a lot of different historical situations in which you know, if the government's allowing you to do it and you are, you know, you're looking at them as the authorities, um, you're going to continue. You know, events of this size with this many people and this many moving parts, um, they're not just things that you can like wave a magic wand and make them go on six weeks from now. A lot of times it's sort of you get your one shot on the calendar and if it doesn't happen, then then it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. we... <laughs> ben, you didn't raise your hand. <laughs> um, like like you said, Fred, Bobby Wintle was in um, what he told me near constant communication with the mayor of Stillwater and the city manager, um, especially in that period from like Tuesday to Thursday. Um, and I will say he didn't um, he, he wasn't expecting to get shut down, but he was prepared to get shut down. So he he was prepared to be told you can't do this. And and every conversation that he had, he was sort of, okay, you know, you guys tell me what to do. Um, he said that they, one, one aspect of the event that they really examined was the expo area, you know, trying to mitigate potential large gatherings of people. So talking about spreading it out more, scrapping it all together. He said he was also prepared to, to scrap the expo. But the last conversation that he had with those city officials was um, later on Thursday. And, and he was told, you know, not he, he was told you don't have to scrap the expo um, and certainly not scrap the event. So um, you're I, I, I do. I believe that green light is a really good visual to, to imagine um, how how Bobby felt at that time. It's good to go. And I and I'm going to put on a good race if I'm going to put on a race. Yeah, and I think, again, the one thing to keep in mind is how uh, there wasn't continuity from one state to the next or one region to the next. Things were happening fast, and I, I, I do believe that Bobby and Crystal were operating on good faith just as the, the, uh, the racers were operating on good faith. You know, one thing we, we did hear from a number of folks, whether that was uh, the Prozac Amanda or other amateurs, was, you know, the sense that, yeah, this... Our world is changing, but there's probably not going to be racing for a while. And uh, they were feeling grateful to, to be able to get one one last event in. Uh, yeah, again, in retrospect, is that is that a good thing to be able to get one last one in for memory's sake? Or is that uh, more like you know being at last call at the bar and you probably shouldn't have one more, but your mind, you're like, I'm doing this and it's fun, so I'm just going to get one last one in. <sighs> but again, I do feel like the, the race promoters – we're looking to, you know, race promoters being experts in putting on bike races, not experts in public health. We're looking to the experts in public health for guidance and, uh, and acted on that guidance, even as, as you know, it was changing day to day. And again, I think that there's plenty of room to be critical of his decision to go forward with the event. You know, yes, you're given the, the green light from... Uh, the local government, but at the end of the day, the power is in your hand. And 
Um, you know, time will tell to see how the gravel community and the cycling community views Bobby's decision to go forward with the event. Um, I, something that I kept coming back to you as well, cause I was monitoring this stuff on social media and, you know, it was starting to be like Friday afternoon, Friday evening into Saturday is when I felt like the tone really started to change on social media against the event with a lot of people looking at some of the like Instagram videos and media coming out of the event and seeing that, you know, Hey, people are having a good time and people are like, you know, drinking drinking beer and, and hugging and like giving each other high fives like that is um, against what we're being told is the safe way to manage this. Um, that's when, I, you know, and, and I understand and I, I totally understand that sentiment as well. Um, so as I saw the um, saw the mood around it start to change. I, uh, I was like, wow, is this guy not like reading, you know, Twitter or Instagram every 10 minutes? And Betsy, something you had told me uh after we had talked when you got back was like, you know, Bobby had gotten so much criticism when he changed the name of his race earlier this year that it may have changed his attitude towards like what people were saying about his event online. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was really interesting. Um, talking to Bobby after, after the race about, you know, if he, was worried about walking down the street in, in Stillwater after after doing this with, you know, just how quickly everything changed and what we know now. And and he just, it, it made him reflect on how hard the last few months had been for him after changing the name. Um, you know, random people in Stillwater sort of not meeting his eye or wanting to tell him what they thought about it. And, uh, you know, so I, I'm not sure when that was in the, in the fall. Go ahead, Ben. Oh, so far. Yeah. Listeners, bear with us. We're trying to figure out how to podcast <laughs> remotely over hangouts here, gesturing like children in a school class by raising their hands. So just, just for those of you who aren't familiar, the Mid-South was for uh, seven years, was it? Yeah. Called Land Run 100, uh, based there in Stillwater, Oklahoma, the home of Oklahoma State University. Uh, it was a race that took on, like a lot of these gravel races do, uh, a point of personal pride for a lot of residents who would not self-identify as cyclists, but appreciated having a big thing coming to town, uh, both that boosted local business and just gave them something cool to do and, and talk about. So they took, so there was some, some sense of ownership from locals about that. So I think Bobby was Bobby and Crystal were surprised when he changed the name uh, in part to get away from what many understandably see as like a white colonial uh, colonist tinged title to something more neutral. Uh, a lot of locals saw that as the race organizers pulling their uh, their thing out from under them. So that caught them off guard. Yeah, change is hard, right? Um, but he he didn't expect how hard that change would be for uh, the the entire community of Stillwater, uh, in addition to just the the fans of the event in general. Um, and it just really struck me he he had told his his staff, you guys, we just, we just got to get through to race day. Like this will all, you know, it'll all pass. And then, um, race day, um, dawned in a way that none of us could have ever imagined. So you guys wake up, it's pouring rain, it's cold. The race is actually delayed a few minutes due to lightning and storms. Um, as you are waiting for the race to go and as the race starts to go, I mean, are you guys thinking about things like social distancing and purelling every surface you touch and, you know, the um, sort of uh, quickly 
uh, agreed upon unofficial ways to keep yourself safe for COVID-19? Or is it just being in a bike race as, as usual? It was not a bike race as usual. I think we all felt kind of lousy because it's dark and raining and lightning, which is never that uh, motivating for most of us. Uh, Amanda was saying she likes it because being a, a cross racer who's comfortable in bad conditions, she knows she can excel. But for most of us sunny, fair weather riders, that's that casts a damper on it. And then, yeah, it's just a weird vibe. We're, we're trying to keep distance and stay warm and dry. Uh, and thinking about, you know, we talked to, for instance, I talked to a doctor at the race. And uh, he had advised my friend Frank Overton, who has a baby at home, hey, maybe you should not come. Uh, it's a it's a small risk, but it's still a risk, and, and you should probably avoid that. So stay home. So Frank and his teammates did, but he, the doctor himself, was out there, and his take was that once the the race starts, he saw that as a very low risk thing because there's going to be people scattered out all over the countryside, uh, fairly distant from each other, which proved to be true. But I think we were all eyeing the starting corral as something that was not six feet of distance. I don't know if it was six feet of distance. Was that even a thing on Saturday? I know we were supposed to keep a distance. I don't think six feet had been instituted yet. Um, and yeah, I I agree with Ben. It was pretty gloomy. Um, I think I was cold and like thinking I would like, why am I riding my bike on this day? Um, but then I was like, I do I want to duck into the coffee shop to stay warm? Like probably not, but it's cold outside. And, you know, you, you do, you start to have these internal, you know, back and forth with yourself about what, what you should be doing. Um, that, and that was certainly, you know, obviously that was heavily weighted, I guess, but, but in the coffee shop, I mean, you had, there were some locals in there sitting and reading the paper. Um, you had cyclists in there, um, trying to warm up, have coffee. So again, it was still this sort of, I think the consensus at that point was uncertainty and sort of lack of, of clarity and best practice. Um, and it was just miserable, which <laughs> you can call poetic justice, I suppose. Yeah. And as we saw, the conditions were epic. I mean, it was red clay mud for the entire 105 mile journey a lot of off the bike running um in the men's race the elite race we saw a really uh, dynamic battle that payson mcelvin won the defending champion held off colin strickland pierce statna may have been the strongest but he had some mechanical problems looked like everyone had mechanical problems out there in the women's race hannah finchamp who we're going to hear from a little bit um rode away from everybody to take the win ahead of Amanda. Now, for both of you, I mean, talk to how did the conditions impact your uh, mentality around this race? You know, there's uncertainty, there's doubt, there's the the fear of you know this pandemic. There's tough conditions. Like, were you able to pursue this event and push that all out, or was it there throughout the entire event? <laughs> I know Betsy wasn't feeling it, but I think a lot of us, myself included, really appreciated being able to get the race going. Some of us, some of us are. Uh, have conditioned ourselves that just pedaling harder can solve a lot of problems, whether that's getting endorphins going through your head or just the escapism that cycling provides or just the habit of doing something familiar. So I think a lot of us appreciated once, once things got rolling, 
<laughs> despite them being rolling through six inches of slimy slop spray in your eyes and teeth and nose. It was, it was an enjoyable experience. Um, the conditions, yeah, it's, it's a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation at the Mid-South. Some years it's dry and it's basically a road race, uh, what many of us in the U.S. would call a faux bay, you know, like uh, a road race that, that tries to emulate Paris-Roubaix by using dirt and washboards instead of cobbles. But, and in some years it rains and the clay turns to quickcrete and just sticks to everything, which is why the race provides paint stir sticks in the goodie bag so you can stop, or, or when you are stopped, by nature, you can uh, use these paint stir sticks to, to try to shovel the mud out of your frame away from your wheels. I think that the, the uh, Roubaix, uh, it is similar to Paris-Roubaix in some ways, in a, in a humble American way, of course, but just that the race requires stamina and strength, certainly, but also a fair amount of luck to get back to still water uh, to be the first to cross the line. So I've seen Pete, you know, to talk to Payson and Colin and Jonathan Baker, they all agreed, Pete, hands down, strongest guy in the day, but did not win on the day because, as Pete admitted, he's uh, you know, not as experienced in riding through muck as Payson is, and he took a couple bad lines, and that and dumb luck jumped, uh, gummed up his derailleur, and he wrapped it around his, his cassette, and uh, that, that's part of bike racing, too. So in, in, in some ways, it... Uh, yeah, there, there was great racing, obviously overshadowed by uh, the, the pandemic, but the, the, the roulette of the weather and the course as a journalist make the, the race fascinating to watch. Um, once you cross the finish line, what were, what, like, you know, what were people doing? You know, we're, we're in the age of elbow bumps and like, you know, not hugging and stuff like that, but were people adhering to it or was the um, emotion of the moment taking over? Well, yes, again, for people who aren't familiar with this race, the signature finish line move of Mr. Bobby Wendell is a big bear hug. Uh, he's out there from well before sunup until the last person crosses the line well after midnight, and he hugs each and every one of them. That's that's just his shtick. That's what he's been doing. And on Thursday before the race, it was announced Bobby hugs are off. And the finishing shoot was certainly... Uh, a much smaller affair than in years past where people are crowding in and there is much hugging, not just from Bobby, but from fellow competitors and, and friends and family. Uh, so that was much to do. And yeah, people were making an effort to stand back from one another. Uh, Bobby was doing more elbow bumps than, than anything else. Uh, and, and again, like just as there was before in the days before the event, there was a mix of people doing keeping distance and, uh, and reverting to the behavior that they had done for years. I have to say, like, you know, like Ben saying, there was no hugs and there wasn't maybe as many people out. Um, the weather, again, <laughs> have I said it? It was shocking. Um, but I will say that there was a ton of cheering at the finish line and it did feel like crossing a finish line at a bike race. And for me, I had like a real pivotal moment at Perkins, which is the halfway point, which is the one um, official neutral aid um, support station on the on the route. I had I rolled into that 50 miles. And I mean, I was done. Like I had been talking to myself for whatever four hours before then I convinced myself 
A, that Ben was going to drop out, which like, if you know Ben Delaney, you, you, you knew he wasn't going to drop out. So uh, I had told myself that. I had also gone pretty deep down into some p- coronavirus pandemic thinking. You know, I'd been getting texts from people uh, yes, the day before, like, hey, are you concerned? Like, should we be concerned? You know, and so I'm out there riding thinking, wow, I'm a nurse, like I'm here. This is so bizarre. The the roads are horrible, you know, back and forth between like, I love riding my bike. Normally, I hate this. There's a pandemic. This mud sucks. Where's is Ben going to be drinking a beer? So like all these thoughts, and I'm spinning this tale. But I get to Perkins. And I mean, people are lining the streets. People are cheering. People are saying, go girl. Someone grabs my bike, goes and washes it, lubes my chain. I get a shot of espresso. I get a Snickers bar. I get offers to, can I clean your sunglasses? And and it was, it was like, I'm just this human. And I needed this. I needed the cheers. I needed the smiles. I needed the support. And okay, I guess I'm finishing this race. And then I was back on my bike. Um, so that was kind of, <laughs> I mean, the strange, strange thoughts, strange times for our minds and our and, and our humanity. Um, so it was interesting that that was what it took was sort of, again, hindsight is 2020, but it, it was this, it was the gathering of people in Perkins that, that really pulled me through the race. One of the things I enjoy about gravel racing is the melting pot of, uh, people and gear and styles of racing and how people approach it. And, uh, this year was fun and that, you know, as you mentioned, Hannah Finchamp in her first gravel race ever, uh, just absolutely dominated, putting her uh, mountain bike finesse and power to use. Uh, in the men's race, we saw, you know, World, World Tour Pete uh, coming in, uh, Jonathan Baker with his cyclocross skills, putting him on the podium. Uh, we had Ashton Lambie, who can, can ride a bike set to world individual pursuit records uh recently and he was out on a on a bike with aero bars and a, a one by drivetrain um, with a massive 52 front chain ring um, then you had people out there on on single speed bikes with with whiskey flask holders on the down tube uh, who were looking to enjoy the day not necessarily try to beat you know, ashton and, and uh so that that vibe certainly continued despite the, the mud. Now here we are, uh, you know, a couple weeks later in the age of coronavirus and knowing we, what we know and the lifestyle that we have about, you know, keeping our distance and habitually cleaning. I mean, Betsy, what do you think about like the fact that people are like cleaning your sunglasses and offering you snicker bars and offering you um, shots of espresso and like hugging and spraying each other with champagne? Would I do the race this weekend? Um, no, but, but the race wouldn't be held this weekend, you know? And I think that's the difference is that on, you know, March 13th or whatever, um, it was a different world and the information at the time was what it was and people were behaving, um, I guess as well as they could at the time, you know, um, this thing is so interesting too, because it's, it's about making personal choices, but also choices for the collective. And I'm not sure that we're really used to doing that. I mean, I think we all think we are, and we want to say that we, we are, we are civic minded and community minded, but, but the reality is this is really new 
for everyone. And the behaviors that we're being asked to make are challenging and they're fraught. And, um, I, yeah, like I said, I mean, we know a lot more now and we're behaving differently now and our personal decisions are weighted differently now. Um, so if Mid-South for this weekend, um, I, 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 I wouldn't go. I, I, I think most people wouldn't go, but then again, I, I don't think it would be held. So, um, it's certainly strange to reflect back on it. And, you know, it's Ben and I, and Brad, our other colleague who went, we we've talked a lot about like, you know, on the one hand you feel fine about it. On the other hand, you, you don't feel fine about it. And, um, and that's just, I think human nature, or it was, it was at that, at that point, we just didn't know. You know, so I talked to Lawson Craddock uh, a few days ago, who's back in Austin, Texas now. And he was saying that, you know, as of Friday, Berenice, there was no thought of going home, of leaving, leaving the race, much less leaving the, the continent. Um, and and uh, one thing that he said, many writers had told him, and the thing that he felt himself was like, yeah, everything was totally fine until it wasn't. It was yeah. just this dramatic 180 degree switch and where that happened that has now happened seemingly everywhere in the globe but that didn't happen at the same time everywhere in the globe yeah when i look back at the three races that we were at that have been impacted by the coronavirus pandemic um there's some some real um similarities that i see with uae tour Paris nice and then the mid-south the first is yeah what we've been talking about this whole time, which is the speed at which news has changed in which that news has completely upended um, our activities and the way that we think about like, you know, our role in society and what is safe and what is hygienic and what is not. So at UAE tour, it was like this race that's going on and there's this far away pandemic going on in the far reaches of China. And then all of a sudden it's in the middle of the race and like, you know, people are being forbidden from talking to each other and going home. Perry Nice, the storyline is, you know, this race is trying to enact measures to make it safe despite this growing global pandemic. And can a bike race function? Can a big pro bike race with, you know, that usually has crowds and podium kisses and hugs and all this stuff, can it eliminate the crowds and the personal contact to a degree that um, it'll be safe to be held. And with the Mid-South, the question is, can a mass participant event um, be carried off in the, in the age of coronavirus? And another thing that another similarity is that when you're at one of these races, um, you're in the race, that's your world. And like you said, like, when you're at the Mid-South, the worry is about the weather and about mud as much as it is maybe about the global pandemic that's increasing around you. You know, when talking to James Start, who was at Perry Nice, um, he was there and asking riders about it and asking officials about it. And, you know, it's this huge news. It's the biggest news story the last, I don't know, 20 years. And yet when you're at a bike race, um, it has equal footing with like, is it going to be windy today? Um, is it going to rain today? You know, the, um, the news and the conversation of the race kind of takes you over and you fall into the culture and the community of this race. Same thing at UAE tour. And, um, as I look at them, I think that, you know, those similarities, um, as an outside observer, as a journalist looking in, um, I guess makes it seem like we should cancel these events. Um, I'm, 
I'm glad the Olympics are canceled. I think the Tour de France should probably be called off. Um, as we look at how this virus has spread and just what can be accomplished with a bike race, um, I, I, th I think it's good that they're off because knowing that, you know, yeah, you can say no hugs and no finish line kisses, but like it's a bike race. Like you're tired. Like you fall back into the muscle memory of like giving someone a high five and having someone give you a Coke and like and doing the activities that you've always done. You know, yes, you're cognizant of the changing world around you. But when you're at a bike race, you're very much enmeshed in the culture and the news cycle of the race. And that can sort of drown out some of the outside news around it. Um, I think that cycling, you know, with these events probably learned some. Uh, important lessons going forward that hopefully we won't have to deal with ever again once this pandemic washes over well Agreed. betsy and ben i really appreciate you sharing your perspective today and i really appreciate you doing such strong reporting from that event i know it wasn't easy i know there were um, very vocal critics out there about the event and the fact that we were at it you know talking to people and um doing our jobs as cycling reporters. Um, but I appreciate the work that you've done and we will catch up with you on a later edition of the Vela News podcast. Okay. Up next is Hannah Finchamp. She's going to talk all about uh, her experience at the mid South and how she won the race. Again, you heard me talk about it at the top of the show. This week's episode is brought to you by Amp Human and its new PR lotion. Uh, PR lotion is the only sports lotion that combines skin absorption technology with the natural electrolyte bicarb. Right now, you can get a great deal on PR lotion. You get 25% off your order by going to amphuman.com using the code VELONEWS25. Uh, again, Bicarb buffers acid that builds up during exercise, and this allows you to train harder and recover faster. So go to amphuman.com, use the code VELONEWS25 to get 25% off your purchase. Okay, let's get on to Hannah Finchamp. Uh, my guest on this week's episode of the VELONEWS podcast is Hannah Finchamp. Hannah is the recent winner of the Mid-South Gravel Race. She's probably still picking red dirt out of her hair and teeth. Uh, Hannah was uh, on the Cliff Pro Mountain Bike Team for seven years, and you probably saw her competing for the win at some of the biggest mountain bike races out there. But she just um, tried her hand at gravel racing this year and was successful at the Mid-South. Um, welcome to the podcast, Hannah Finchamp, I mean, first question for you. Are you, do you still have like red clay um, in like you're coming in your ears and in your hair? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've been finding it everywhere. I think hopefully at this point we've all been washing our hands enough that, you know, the red clay is off my body, but definitely finding it all over my shoes and helmet. And I think I still have mud all over my cycling computer also. So it's hanging around there. Now, Hannah, before we get to the details of your race win, obviously the big storyline around the Mid-South this year was the fact that it happened as the coronavirus pandemic was sweeping across the country. There was a real debate of whether to participate in the event or not, whether it should have carried on or not. Um, you know, first of all, 
What's your perspective on it now? You know, we're oh, 10 days removed from the event, looking back on it. What's your, um, what's your perspective on the event going on and you participating in it? Yeah, it's, it's a really tough question and it is really sensitive. And there are many things that I consider myself to be an expert in, and this is not one of them. Um, so I think all that I could do in that moment was lean on the decisions that other people who are smarter than me were making. Um, and at that point in time, the decision was for the race to go on. And, you know, it was before USA Cycling pulled their permits, um, for other races. And, and so it really was right on that edge and it was a tough decision for everyone to have made. I think that the decision that was made was a good one. Um, but yeah, things have escalated really quickly and we're in a scary place right now. As the race weekend was going on, you know, it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Um, how is your attitude towards this pandemic and the race going on? How did it change? Yeah, I traveled there on Thursday. So traveling, um, that was when I, I really first started to pay attention to this whole thing. It was evident that there needed to be certain precautions that were taken. And I actually have a peanut allergy, so I always clean my seat when I get on the plane, but there is a def definitely a little bit extra care taken this time. And, um, but still I never really considered not traveling when I got there on Friday, it, it kind of escalated again. And Saturday morning, it's like, Oh wow. You know, going back tomorrow's it's a whole other animal now. And was there any debate within the team about to pull out or whether to continue? I mean, you're on this uh, Orange Seal off-road team. You're the newest member. Um, what was the discussion like inside the team? Well, I was the only one who flew to the event. Um, so everyone else had been had already been there for a while, had traveled earlier via their cars. Um, so, you know, for them, it, for our team, I think – there wasn't a lot of discussion of pulling out. The discussion was mostly, um, you know, how can we be safe? How can we respect the rules that are in place right now, the suggestions that are in place right now and, and doing our part in that way. And, um, at the time, you know, racing was suggested via the race organizers and everyone else. So we went along with it and, and now I can promise you we've had multiple conference calls on the team. We're all battening down the hatches. We're all doing our part. We're riding alone. We're all in our homes. So we're just trying to follow the best guidelines. So what kind of stuff were you doing during the race weekend? I mean, you know, like a lot of hand sanitizer use, not sharing bottles. Like what kind of uh, precautions were you taking? Yeah, a lot of hand sanitizer use. We had um, all kinds of hand sanitizers, constantly pumping that out, you know, absolutely no physical contact, no hugs, high fives. It was all elbow bumps at the time and washing hands constantly. And yeah, just not sharing anything, no equipment sharing, no water bottles, anything like that. So Hannah, when you think back to the race itself, what is the, you know, you're 10 days afterwards, what's the memory of the race that still stands out? What's like the moment from that, you know, 10 hour plus day on a bike that still is the most vivid? <laughs> that is a great question because there are a lot of moments that stand out to me because there were so many pivotal points throughout that day where my perspective completely shifted. Um, and so I have these moments of thought, Oh, that's when the race changed. Um, but if one, if I have to pick one, it would be at mile 
91. Um, I was completely bonked. I was out of nutrition and my Garmin beeped and said, you know, big climb ahead. (laughs) And I looked up and there was this huge climb and I was determined to ride it, but it was so muddy that it caked all along my tires and my wheels would no longer spin. So I tried riding, I tried pushing my bike and I just, I couldn't get the mud to clear at all. So I went to lift it up and it was so heavy that I physically couldn't lift it. So I knelt down to the ground and had to put the bike on my back as if I was squatting like at a squat rack and just take a couple steps at a time all the way up the hill. <laughs> wow, that brings back memories of like, uh, <laughs> like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill or, or La Ruta. I used to race that race down in uh, Costa Rica and uh, we'd get mud like that every now and again. Um, how did you get to that point? Like take me through your race day. What were these other pivotal moments um, that, you know, that propelled you to the race win? Yeah, I think um, the morning of, uh, we we all knew it was going to be raining, so that was no surprise. But walking out of our Airbnb, it was absolutely pouring rain. And that was, I think, a moment where I thought, oh, wow, this is going to be a lot gnarlier than I even thought. Um, so that first moment of just working through that dread of, I don't actually know if I want to race in this much rain and working through it and knowing like, no, it'll be fun. It'll be a good challenge. And, and, um, and starting out getting through that and having a moment around hour two, where I was like, man, this is actually awesome because a lot of times when we have these huge challenges, it actually propels us into the flow state better. So I found myself at more, heightened senses throughout the race. So it was really exciting to feel that on the ball and that on top of the pedals and just feeling really excited throughout. But then the next pivotal moment would have to be around hour six when I was really, I was really starting to hurt. I figured the race would be longer than last year, um, which I believe Payson won it last year in about five hours. So I thought, okay, for me, maybe what, five and a half, five forty-five. Um, but when I hit six hours and I knew I still had a long ways to go and I reached back in my pocket for food and there was nothing there. I had used everything I had, um, to conquer those elements because you do eat a lot more when you're cold and, and suffering. And so I had used all the food that I'd brought and I had a moment where I just thought, okay, you are going to bonk. This is going to hurt, but you'll get through it. Um, and yeah, that was, (laughs) that was the beginning of a very long, slow, hard, uh, (laughs) march to the finish. And now, did you know that you were the lead woman at that time? Were you paying attention to uh, Amanda Nauman and some of the other strong riders in the women's field? Or were you very much just riding your own race? A little bit of both. So at the start, um, I had Amanda Nauman and Sammy Runnels in my group for, a little while, um, but around after the first hour, they had dropped off. I noticed they were no longer in the group. So I had a pretty good sense that I was in first. At the halfway point at the aid station, I had to take a very quick bathroom break. So the 20 seconds that I was in the porta potty, I was pretty sure that someone had passed me because that's just how we races are. Like, if you're not positive, then you got to go for it. Um, so the rest of the race, I kind of 
was thinking, I think I'm in first. I'm not sure if I'm in first, but I'm pretty sure I'm in first. Um, and just, you know, at that point, we're all going as fast as we can anyways, because packs have really exploded and you're just marching to your own beat. Um, so it wasn't, I wasn't paused. I was, I was in first until mile 85 when the Jeep came back to me and started recording me. And were you riding in groups of men? Were you riding solo? Like, what was the actual dynamics of racing for you out there? All of the above. Um, so we started out, we were in pretty good groups, and I was in a group of men in the second chase group from the front group. Um, and we were working together. We were absolutely crushing it. And then somewhere along the way, everyone in the group sat up. I don't know if it was, I think everyone was just tired. All the men in my group started congratulating each other, telling them how strong they'd all been riding. And so I went to the front and started to push the pace and look back and, and no one went with me. So I just rolled off the front of my group, um, eventually caught up with some stragglers who had been dropped from the lead group. And, and from there, it was really just working, you know, maybe 10 minutes with a few people you catch and then moving up and 10 minutes and, ten, you know, and, and kind of going a little bit at a time with people. That's bizarre. Did you ever find out why these guys were congratulating themselves, um, like at the midway point? Were you like, hey, uh, I just looked around. There's no finish line. I think we still have a lot of racing left to do, guys. No, uh, no, there's no time for high fives. Yeah, it was really bizarre and really funny. I I just sat there thinking, am I imagining this? Because I, I was pretty shocked that they were all so, um, you know, this is this is maybe at mile 30. So I think, but I also think that that's really cool because it shows how hard the conditions were, that at mile 30, people were already stoked on their performance and how they'd handled the elements. So to think that people were stoked at having completed 30 miles with 70 more miles to go shows that it was pretty gnarly out there. That's a funny story. I'm going to, I'm going to tell that to people like, yeah. <laughs> and I was in the second group of guys that they just set up after 30 miles and started high-fiving each other. That's amazing. <laughs> um, the, uh, the lasting image I think from this year's event is yeah, like mud covered people and maybe it'll be, you know, Payson trying to make it over that stream, stream crossing. But when I think about it, um, the image that stands out is of you sitting in the finishing chute, eating a cheeseburger. Um, Take us through that scene, like what, you know, you're pedaling into these final few, uh, you know, moments of the race. You're in downtown Stillwater. I, I, I would assume you're still bonking at this point. Are you just like dreaming of food? And who, how did you get this cheeseburger handed to you? <laughs> yeah, I, it was a death march to the finish for me. There is absolutely no way around that. Like from hour six to almost eight hours of having no food, I hit some dark places out there where I really wasn't sure. I knew I wasn't going to quit, but I didn't know if my body would take me to the finish. Um, so I needed food. That was literally the only thing I could think about by the time I had got gotten to the pavement. And as I was coming to the finish line, all I could think was, food is getting closer, food is getting closer. It wasn't even about finishing at that point. So when I crossed the finish line, everyone's congratulating me. I turned to um, the Orange Hill Opera team manager, uh, team director, and said, I need food. And he handed me a recovery drink. And I said, no, thank you, but I need food. He said, oh, yeah, we have it outside. We've got it all ready for you. I said, no, I need it now. And this was my first race with the team. So I can only imagine him thinking, 
wow, this, this is pretty strange post-race etiquette. <laughs> but, you know, he, he brought the burger over and, and I wasn't even aware at that point of all of the cameras following me around. I was just on a mission. So I sat down and I started eating and, and in hindsight, now I know why I hit that point. I was so hungry. I was just double fisting and shoveling fries into my mouth. And after several minutes, um, they asked, so are you feeling better? I said, no, not, not at all. And long story short, eventually they brought medical over to me and it was deemed that I was uh, hypothermic and, and needed to be warmed up. So it wasn't even just food at that point. My body was just kind of shutting down or at least on that path. Oh my gosh. Well, again, um, yeah, the post-race burger scarf, I think is going to be the, uh, lasting image of this year's race. Hannah, this year's, I mean, this victory and it's your first race with the orange seal team. I mean, where does this stand within the larger scope of your pro career? You've been racing professionally for seven years. You were on the Luna slash cliff team, you know, one of the biggest teams in the world. Now here you are switching teams, picking up a new uh, racing format and having some success at it. Where does it stand within the wider scope of your racing career? It's exciting. It's always fun to add new things to my resume. And, you know, I started with Cliff Bar in triathlon, actually. So I raced for them when they had a triathlon team. And after several years of that, they asked me if I wanted to switch over to mountain biking. And I was still so young that changing my sport Seemed, seemed somewhat reasonable and it was a dream come true to be able to race professionally. So I went for it and I absolutely fell in love with mountain biking. And this last year when I spoke with Orange about joining their team, there were just so many opportunities that they could offer me. And I had, they offered me a lot of flexibility in my schedule to be able to race internationally and pursue many of these mountain bike um, opportunities that I am dreaming of. And also they suggested that I try out gravel, which was something I had never really considered for myself before, but I thought, okay, well, you know, I, I really value your opinion and I, and I value building my, my own brand and my ability to prove that I can race on different platforms. Um, so honest, to be completely honest, I wasn't sure about it going into the race. I thought we'll see. And I love it. It was super fun. I'm really grateful that Orange Dale encouraged me to try this new platform and I'm looking forward to more of the races for sure. How is your program um, now different from where it was with Cliff Bar. I mean, this is a team that's been around for a long time. The Cliff Bar Pro team, you know, Valdek, he's been advising athletes and managing athletes for decades. Um, and now you're stepping outside that bubble. How are things different? Uh, racing schedule wise or just in general? Uh, just in general. Yeah, um, it is different. And I think both are great. I'm really grateful for all the opportunities that Cliff gave me. One of the one of the huge um, things that drew me to Orange Seal, though, was that freedom that they offer. Uh, Cliff Bar has been around for a long team, and they've worked out for a long time, and they've worked out an awesome formula for their success. But I was looking for a little bit more wiggle room to create my own perfect schedule, and Orange Seal has really allowed that for me. And they've really proven to be um, a team that wants the best for each individual. So we've formulated a completely personalized 
race schedule uh, for each of us. And I'm just really excited to be able to kind of look at the calendar and pick and choose those events and, and have a schedule that I feel like each race says something uniquely about myself and my goals. You know, a decade ago, 15 years ago, a person in your position, I mean, there was basically one goal in the sport and that was Olympic qualification. Now there's, you know, big stage races, there's gravel, there's so many different uh, racing opportunities out there. When you look at your long-term goals in mountain biking, off-road racing, cycling in general, what are the things you want to accomplish? My goal would still be the Olympics. I think, um, man, there's just something, it, there's a reason it's been the goal for so long, right? Is because it is so incredibly powerful to say that you went to the Olympics. And that's a huge goal for myself. It's, um, it's going to stretch me and it's going to challenge me. And that's really the overarching goal that I have in sport is to constantly be challenged. And I'm hoping that in order to be challenged, it will take me to the largest stage in the world, which would be the Olympics. But I also believe that I have the ability to stretch and do so many more things. So as an athlete, I, I don't, I don't want to make it easy on myself. I don't want to just have this one line drive of we're going to the Olympics and I'm not going to do anything else. I, I want I want to be dynamic and I want to be well-rounded. So that's why I believe that I can do these longer events and, and challenge myself in that way and reach out and, and do these races that other amateurs are doing. And I can, you know, guide them and hopefully maybe teach them something. Maybe they'll teach me something. Um, but yeah. And, and have all of that experience culminate in, the Olympic dream. Now, it's tough to talk about short-term goals because so many of the races are postponed, canceled on the chopping block. But when you look at um, the big American gravel events, events like Dirty Kanza, Belgian Waffle Ride, I mean, are those of interest to you? Do you see yourself um, pointing yourself at those events as well in the near future, should they occur? Yeah, they. Um, I do have a bit of a gravel schedule planned, um, or had as things change. I'm not really sure which to say at this point. Um, so yeah, I, I was planning on doing Belgian waffle ride and big sugar gravel. Um, those were for sure on the calendar and then kind of moving from there and yeah, I'll make my way through all through the rounds of the gravel events and have fun with it. And, you know, I'm, I'm open at this point. I'm, I'm open to see where my bike can take me. Well, Hannah, it took you to the finish line. <laughs> Of the mid of the mid south uh, in first place, and again um, that image of you scarfing a cheeseburger. I fe I feel a little now um, feel a little now bit bad like passing that around because it's like wow, not only was this gal super hungry and tired, but she was also potentially hypothermic. Um, how long did it take you to recover from that effort and the conditions? Oh, in in terms of short term recovery, it took a couple hours. Um, the the medics came over; they were awesome. Um, they actually, you'll you might hear the rounds. They did take me to the hospital, but it was just because the hospital was the closest available shower. So I didn't check in as a patient, um, but kudos to Mid-South for having that great of medical attention available that they could usher me over, get me in a hot shower. My toes were completely black. And that was when I kind of like, I took, I was like, no guys, I really don't think I'm hypothermic. I think I'm just really hungry. Took my shoes off. I was like, oh, oh my gosh, get me in the shower now. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, wow. Uh, when did, how long did it take for the color to return to your toes? 
Oh, uh, I mean, the duration of the shower, which I'll probably admit was at least 30 minutes long. <laughs> wow. Well, Hannah, I appreciate you making time for us today. Um, Hannah Finch at one the Mid-South had black toes, potentially hypothermic, but was able to come back from the brink, much like she was able to come back from the brink of a bonk to win the race. Uh, we're going to keep our eyes on you, Hannah, as um, your racing schedule hopefully gets back up and going. Um, and I can let you get back to your afternoon. Thanks so much for being a guest on the Vela News podcast. Thank you. It was an honor.